0: Welcome to the State of Women Radio Network, the world's leading voice for women and girls who are transforming private equity, venture capital, crowdfunding, angel, and impact investing. Subscribe to our podcasts, join in the conversation on Facebook, and find all of the information you're looking for at thestateofwomen.com. Now, here's Women Investing in Women and Girls. Welcome
1: to Women Investing in Women and Girls on the State of Women radio network. Today, we're so thrilled to welcome our guest today on the show, Jackie Zahner, who is the Chief Engagement Officer of Women Moving Millions, as well as the President of the Jacqueline and Gregory Zahner Foundation. Jackie, it's great to have you on air with us today. How are you?
2: I'm very well. It's lovely to be on with the both of you. Thank you for having me.
1: Wonderful. Well, Jackie, just to start off our conversation, I'd like to know a little bit more about yourself. So could you tell us more about how you got your start in the world of finance?
2: Oh, my gosh. This is dating back a long time ago now. Just FYI, I'm about to turn 52. I don't know how that is possible, but it is. Uh, But my background, Mm -hmm. um, gosh, where to start? I went to school. I actually grew up in a very small town in British Columbia, Canada, and found my way to finance at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. And way back when, I think it's actually like the 30th year of this program, if that's humanly possible, um, a group (laughs) of finance professionals at the university started something called the Portfolio Management Program, where students came together to act as real-life portfolio managers on um, an endowment uh, of about a million dollars. And that gave me my start in finance um, for the last two years of my degree, my undergraduate degree with a major in finance. And lo and behold, I was fortunate enough, I think, to be the first hire, undergraduate hire out of the University of British Columbia to join Goldman Sachs in an analyst program, actually in mortgage finance, back in 1988. So my, uh, my career started there, but it was after a couple of summer internships um, in the financial field that landed me at Goldman Sachs uh, way back when.
1: Amazing. And you've continued to pave your way, an amazing path for women in the financial world. Let me just get this straight. You were the first and youngest female to go from trader to partner at Goldman Sachs. Is that correct?
2: Yes, it was. Um, I started Goldman in 88. And in 1996, was the youngest woman at the time to make partner in the first, um, as you said, in a trading role.
1: That is so groundbreaking. And as an undergrad studying business myself, we often learn what it's like to be a woman in Wall Street and in the financial sector. And from your experience, what are some of the challenges women face on Wall Street? And how How do you think women can and should overcome these challenges?
2: Oh, gosh. Well, obviously, I started back in the late 80s. So in in some ways, very, very different time than it is today. And I left Goldman in 2002. So I had a 14-year career, most of which was on the trading floor. Um, And I think a lot has changed, frankly, since my time uh, at Goldman and in that environment. Um, I've now just crossed uh, the road from being gone as long as I was there. That being said, unfortunately, as you probably are aware, the statistics around women's participation in the financial services sector, and in particular in in sales, not so much in sales, but in trading roles, has really barely changed in the past 10 to 15 years since I left. And a lot of my work at Goldman at the time in the early and mid-90s was really to create a lot of the programs and initiatives to address the barriers and challenges that women often face uh, when pursuing a career, you know, at a firm like Goldman. So, you know, I think a lot of it is is still around, unfortunately, um, being an environment where it is a traditional sort of male culture. A lot of women don't self-identify with pursuing roles in finance and particularly in sales and trading. It's sort of, it's that famous uh, Marianne Wright Edelman quote, you cannot be what you cannot see. Um, so careers in finance, especially, you know, ones that are around investing and trading are still have very minimal uh, female participation. So I think one, you know, is that issue you cannot be and what you cannot see. Um, another big issue remains around the culture. And so if you do end up in that career, you know, are you in an environment that feels supportive of, you know, who you are as a person, you know, your values, the way you approach your work? And, you know, unfortunately, you know, I think in a lot of places, it's still not that um, the new frontier of the investing and trading space, perhaps more in hedge funds in particular and in private equity, where women are virtually um, non-present.
1: You're right. And and some of the ways financial f- Firms are trying to tackle this problem is through initiatives to support women. I know Goldman Sachs has their 10,000 Women program. JP Morgan has their Women's Interactive Network. Do you believe that there is more that firms should be doing to become more inclusive and to do um, better to make the workplace um, a better place for women? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the big firms in particular have had now
2: a decade or even two worth of quote-unquote diversity initiatives, which include mentorship programs and women's networks and, you know, a long list, sponsorship programs, a long list of things, sort of check the box kind of things that in theory um, should really help to drive those numbers up. And I think to some degree that they have, especially at large firms that take diversity super seriously... So I think all of that is good. Um, That being said, I think, um, and a little bit of sort of my challenge with the whole lean in movement is to say, yes, you know, women, of course, should do all they could, you know, not leave before they leave, all those kind of things. But there's still, I think, a lot of institutional um, bias. We're hearing the word implicit or unconscious bias that comes up a lot now that's still very, very present So unless that is sort of solved, um, unless there's top-down commitment to creating a workplace that's very merit-based, you know, I wonder how much will really change. So I think the diversity sector is sort of looking at the past 10 years and saying, wow, you know, not much has changed despite a lot of words and theoretically a lot of programs. So I think it's time to take it to the next level. And there's work being done by people like Barbara Annis, a personal friend that wrote a book um, called Gender Intelligence that's really trying to look past this idea of diversity to really think about how do we become much more uh, gender inclusive and gender sensitive and gender intelligent in a way that sort of, uh, I think, reframes it as an opportunity and not a threat.
1: Absolutely. And I know Avery will get more to how you feel about this focus um, through Mo- Women Moving Millions, but right now I want to ask you, how has your background in finance, particularly in your experience at Goldman Sachs, influenced your approach to the rest of your career? Oh, uh, you know what? It's it's so
2: fundamental, I would say, you know, people ask me, "Why do I care so much about women and girls?" and why is You know, the 14 years after leaving Goldman really been focused on women's inclusion and advancement first started, you know, I would say in the leadership place and looking at women's participation and inclusion in business and finance to now very, you know, broad-based from supporting women filmmakers to uh, women's rights works in in Africa to you name it. Um, And it all really dates um, back, uh, maybe even farther, but, you know, fundamentally to having that personal experience of, uh, you know, having a professional career in a place where women were so underrepresented, becoming very active programmatically and studying and thinking about women's inclusion and leadership, you know, at a place like Goldman Sachs. And yet at the same time, having experienced a lot of success and obvious, you know, financial success in a way that allows me now and the, for the past 14 years to have primarily a philanthropic focus. So it was, um, you know, and I, I did experience, uh, as much as obviously I, I did really well and was promoted young, you know, I did also experience, um, harassment at work. That was pretty fundamental for me and sort of seeing that life isn't always a bowl of chair. It was that personal experience that ignited my passion for me to really look at the issue of inclusion, and women's Mm -hmm. advancement, and then give me the financial resources, you know, to pursue that once I I had uh, more time.
3: Yeah, well, Jackie, you're clearly working in such a critical intersection between fields that you found yourself operating in, both in its influence on you and its ability to empower others. And before we dive into the remarkable amount of work that you've done to champion the advancement of women and girls these past 14 years, Um, I'd like to touch on something that I think is a really interesting title or sort of development in your identity, uh, if you will. You call yourself a career philanthropist, um, and I'd love for you to explain how you would define a career philanthropist and further um, what led you to shift your perception of your work to adopt such a role and how it changed the way in which you approach the world.
2: Well, thank you, and it it was really difficult for me to hear that question. So I I'm just going to frame it back uh, for you just to make sure I heard that clearly. So I think what you were asking me is sort of this term around career philanthropists, and it actually is something I just made up. <laughs> I think if I ever write a book, I'm going to write that. Uh, maybe that'll be the title of it. And the term showed up for me. Um, in the following way, uh, just by definition, I, w- I do, uh, I obsessively collect research on women and girls. I, you know, I'm one of those people that think if you can make the case, um, whether it be the economic case or the business case, let alone the moral case for gender equality, then that's going to help bring a lot of people on board. So I, I obsessively collect research on every issue you can imagine. And in fact, I have, I think now, gosh, 325 reports aggregated um, wow. that's available on my website, com. I know I've talked to um, uh, your platform, and I'm perhaps sharing some of that research. But it was in going through uh, a study, a wealth study, I think it was a UBS or uh, a different study, looking at the sources of wealth for billionaires. As well as um, what they sort of self-defined, what their careers were, how they spent their time, and in looking through the study, uh, uh, when it was disaggregated by gender in terms of data, and the men um, billionaires um, would often, obviously, would be like technology or business or finance um, as the top. And yet, when I look to to the to the um, the female data, the top uh, bucket was. Uh, philanthropy, which wasn't even in the top five for men. So in other words, women of wealth were sort of self-identifying that what they did professionally was philanthropy. And then I applied it to my own life and saying, and often once you leave like a professional environment like Goldman, where you've had a title and people know what you do, you know, even sort of talking about yourself as a philanthropist can sometimes get, you know, eyes that roll back in the head. And um, when you do that and it becomes really like a job, so by how I define it is someone who engages in the work of philanthropy, which of course means to try to make the world a better place um, full-time like they would a career. And that's really what I do. I mean, from you know most days to all day, um, whether it be in the variety of boards that I serve on, my role with Women Moving Millions. Um, What I'm doing in the world almost all the time is around, you know, moving the dial towards gender equality. So that's how I came up with the term career philanthropist. And it really, it seems to be resonating within our Women Moving Millions community where the vast majority of people um, that are part of our community and network are doing the same as I am, really using all their resources, time, treasure, and talent to try to make a difference in the issue areas they care about.
3: No, I absolutely love that, and I think it does so clearly resonate with the community that you're working in, and I think this evolving generation of individuals who are operating within the world to inherently make it a better place because we are so much more interconnected than we once were. So now to really get to the meat of this discussion, um, I'd love to talk more about Women Moving Millions. Um, What was the inspiration behind the organization, and, and what does it do? Yeah, well, I uh, I didn't create
2: Women Moving Millions. It was started with an idea by by one of our co-founders, Helena Kelly Hunt, who um, is a feminist historian and did a lot of work around and really is interested in this idea of who funds feminism or who funds the women's movement. And I think at the time was was writing a book on this subject and was interviewing uh, women. And what she found is that um uh, one, very few women, and this was dating back to 2006, that she could identify as philanthropist had ever get given a named gift, so a gift in their name, not anonymously, to a women's organization, to an organization that focused on females at the million-dollar level. And um, this is at the time, of course, as it is today, as sort of the field of philanthropy is exploding And more and more people were making big gifts, but they weren't going to women's organizations and they weren't um, oftentimes, if it was anonymous gifts and studies have shown this, it's more likely to be a female. So she had this idea um, with her um, sister, Swanny Hunt, I guess she was talking to her about it, to do something to spark um, the giving to women-led organizations at the million-dollar level. And that's how Women Moving Millions was born under the leadership of of Helen LaKelley Hunt and supported financially by Helen and her sister Swanee. So it started as a campaign in 2007. I was not involved then, but I was very active philanthropically um, on the boards of a number of women organizations at the time and giving to a lot of them. Uh, And I had heard about this campaign, which had a goal of inspiring um, $150 million in named gifts to women, women's organizations, and more specifically at the time, Women's Foundations. So that gift could be one year or a number of years, but it had to be named, um, and it had to be, I think, uh, at the time over, a, actually, I don't think it had a time frame. I think it could be any time frame. So I was approached to make a million-dollar gift um, to organizations, and, um, and I did. So I did it to a combination of Women's Foundations and the Women's Funding Network, which was an organization I was very involved with at the time. So I joined as a community member and was one of the 102 people who came together in the spring of 2009 to celebrate the end of the campaign which had successfully, despite the economic environment, as you can imagine at that time, in 2008 and 2009, um, to successfully raise $180 million from 102, I think 101 women and one man, um, two women-led organizations. So that's
3: how I became involved. Wow, I mean, that's that's incredible. And that's clearly producing such tremendous change in the world. Um, even to dive into this further, what are some of the key programs or um, initiatives or goals within Women Moving Millions, Um, you know, whether that be issue areas or skills trainings? Um, how, How do you all work together in order to do this? And I think it would also be interesting to discuss how mentorship fits into this framework.
2: Yes, thank you. So maybe I'll just jump you forward from the end of the campaign very quickly. So... Uh, I got involved at the end of a campaign, and it was just supposed to be that, a campaign. It was supposed to end. But what happened is women found each other that shared values and said, you know, this is just the beginning. And, you know, the, the research to this day shows that a relatively small percentage of total philanthropic giving is actually specifically designated for women and girls, and this actually aligned with work that I was doing at the same time that we were mapping the funding for the women's movement more generally. So I got super involved, as did some other women, um, to say, uh, what next? And we now describe a period where we went from campaign to community, where um, I took on an ever-increasing leadership role um, to take Women Moving Millions to what it is today which is its own 501c3, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to mobilize unprecedented resources for girls and women. So, as of today, we've gone uh, from 102 people that were part of the campaign to a global community of 260 individuals, each of which now have made a pledge or gift of a million or more. So, that transition effectively happened in 2012. So, we've been four years now of an ongoing organization with this broader mission and over that time as we've built uh, built internal capacity and obviously we have a very robust board of directors, et cetera, we've continued to add on uh, programmatically to what is at a very exciting point um, that we announced just two weeks ago at our annual summit in San Francisco. Um, So we do do a lot of programming for our members. We have, oh my gosh, like over a dozen events um, that can be for our members, potential members and others. We've had workshops on how to use documentary film as a tool for social change. We have active calls on trafficking, on anti-pornography, on multiple, multiple issue areas. Um, And we have in-person events, uh, including the annual summit, which I just mentioned, what we came to realize over the course of building um, this community and engaging with our members is sort of uh, goes back to this idea of career philanthropy that when you have um, the opportunity and the resources and the passion and commitment to want to take on um, philanthropy as a full-time role, you know, you often are on your own to try to figure out how. Um, so, we've, we've offered a lot of opportunities to build your skills, whether that be in uh, training around voice and influence and, you know, writing, things like that, to how to use your financial resources in alignment with your vision and values. But just now, we've uh, more formally announced that we will be developing what we think is the first ever holistic women's philanthropic leadership curriculum and it'll be piloted, of course, within our community uh, over the course of the next year, but we will also very much look to um, think about how we we roll out and share this content that we're going to both curate and create um, more broadly. Uh, so it'll be in four main areas that we've identified in discussions with with our members and outside parties, sort of what are you looking for? What do you need to be the best person you can be in the work that you're doing? And those four areas are one, voice and influence, uh, how to develop yourself as a thought leader, how to be a champion for the organizations you care about, how to leverage your network. Uh, The two is financial engagement, which is we know philanthropy is just not about giving dollars. It is about all your financial resources, and how you can align them with your vision and your values. So that means gender lens investing is a big area we're taking on. And we just had our first actually full day Money, Women, and Impact um, uh, workshop just a few weeks ago in San Francisco. Um, the third area is philanthropic strategies, which is how to do philanthropy well, how to develop a theory of change, how to map your impact, how to serve um, as a board on your board of directors, how to be a great fundraiser. So all of those will fall under our, our that third bucket. And the last and really super important is this bucket that we're calling self-awareness and self-care. And obviously, that can include the universe of things. But what we really want to make sure is we're supporting our members and being the best that they can be um, and bringing that to the table. And not that we're going into a whole health and wellness direction, but if you don't care for yourself, it's very hard to care for others. So we want Wonderful. to make sure that that's a
1: priority as well. Excellent. Well, Jackie, we are so thankful to share all of this with you. If you are a premium subscriber, we are so glad that you'll be able to listen to more of our conversation with Jackie today. I'd like to also invite all of you to connect with us by going to facebook.com slash women investing or following us on Twitter at women investing. We'd like to thank all of you for listening in today. You've been listening to be the to women investing in women and girls on the state of women radio network. This show is produced by the State of Women Radio Network, the first radio network for women and girls. If you are a premium content subscriber on the State of Women, be sure to stay tuned with our guest, Jackie Zayner. But for now, I'm your host, Michelle Jaffe. Until next time.
0: Thanks for listening to Women Investing in Women and Girls. Our discussion continues as we dive in even deeper for our premium subscribers. Click the link for information on exclusive access, premium content, and ad-free listening. Subscribe to our podcasts, join in the conversation on Facebook, and find all of the information you're looking for at thestateofwomen.com.